Good morning, everybody. Yes, round of applause for Anna. Very good. Excellent. Uh, life is hard. God is good. We're in week number four, studying the book of Lamentations. Uh, it's about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. As we talked about last week, huge, huge event. You know, Lamentations, as you read through, just five short chapters, as you read through the emotions that pour out on those pages. In chapter one, uh, the Hebrew word is for all, A-L-L, is used constantly. All people have left us. All people have forsaken us. Um, The constant refrain in chapter one is, there is no one to comfort us. Isolation. When you're suffering, you can feel so isolated. And that's the theme of chapter one. Then you get to chapter two, and it's just a pure on anger. It's like, in many ways, there's a lot of the stages of grief that are are incorporated in Lamentations. Just so angry at what is happening. Like, God, how could you do this? God, you've become our enemy. God, look at the children fainting in the streets. Because when Babylon puts... Jerusalem under siege. I mean, you, you do that because you're just gonna, you're gonna just dry it out from food and water. And it was just such a terrible time. Then you get to chapter three and it turns all about to the self, to me. Like I am bitter. I am hurting. I am suffering. No one's ever suffered like me and the hurt and the pain. Then you get to chapter four. And once you've reached chapter four, there's this real numbness, a deep depression. Like Money doesn't matter. Food doesn't matter. Nothing matters. I wish I was dead. Why am I still living? And then you end the entire book. And it says at the last verse of the whole, of the whole book of Lamentations is, I guess, God, you have rejected us. Uh, actually, it is using a word that is used earlier in the Bible and, and in the book of Leviticus. It actually means, God, I guess you're disgusted with us. And we've just gone too far and you can no longer love us anymore. And this is going to come into play. So today we want to talk about why do we suffer? Lamentations covers a whole history of suffering. But what we want to do today is we want to get to the root. Because what the history, we began to take a break last week from the emotions of Lamentations. They, well, how did they get to this place? And today we want to conclude that. And when you look at the history of how did they get to the place where so much suffering was was happening. How do they get there? You'll actually find yourself at the very root of why suffering in general happens to any of us anytime around the world. And what we're going to see here is there is broad agreement. When, when you look at the people who are experts on humanity itself throughout history or in the social sciences, it's hard to get people to agree on anything. There is broad, broad agreement through historians and social scientists like psychoanalysts of why we why we suffer. And we're going to head there. And this is what the Bible actually points to. So uh, Lamentations is like a microcosm of suffering. And when the Babylonians bring tremendous suffering to them, uh, it's going to answer for us in the history of of why actually we suffer. What is the root of all of this suffering? So uh, let's do real quick. Let's get into the history of why was Jerusalem destroyed and why is all this pain and suffering happened? If you and I share, as I think we do, if you and I share the opinion that we should do anything we can do to diminish the amount of suffering that is going on in the world, the most direct path to do that is what the history of the destruction of Jerusalem leads us to. 
So again, if you and I share the opinion, and I'm, I'm sure that we all do, no one's here is going to say, no, nah, I'm cool with the suffering in the world. Let's just keep it going. I think all of us say, oh, no, no, we should do anything we can do. Here is the most direct path. The Bible gives us the most direct path to ending the suffering. We're going to get to the root of the problem. So King Hezekiah was king in Judah. And we're going to throw up a map in just a second, just to kind of get it, our bearings on this whole thing. But he's the king of Judah, and he's not called a good king. He's called a great king. Not just good, he's great. He's a great godly king who stood against so many of the bad things that have been happening in the kingdom. His own father. You think about breaking out of family cycles. His own father was sacrificing Hezekiah's brothers and sisters in the fire to the God of the king of Assyria. I mean, they had made these ties. He had done horrendous things, but comes along Hezekiah and he breaks all that. He's clearly, as far as kings of Judah go, he's clearly God's favorite king. And as the Bible says, I said a second ago, he's called the greatest king of Judah that ever was and led them into tremendous spiritual reforms. So let's go to the map. Let's just get our bearings on it. I know a lot of us are thinking a lot about Israel right now and the pain and the suffering that's going on there. And as the Bible tells us in the 122nd Psalm, we can never pray enough for the peace of Jerusalem. So here, here is the map, okay? Uh, the nation of Israel uh, only stayed together, united for two generations of kings, and then they broke apart, north and south, okay? So we're dealing with Jerusalem that's down the south. We'll call it Judah. Jerusalem's right in this area here, okay? So Assyria is the empire. They're the superpower. They're coming to lay siege to Jerusalem. They had come down here. They had picked off all, all of uh, southern uh, Israel is down here, kingdom of Judah. And they're picking off all the little towns, little towns. And then finally, there's a town in here. It's called Lachish. It's the second most important town in all of Judah. It's the second most important military base in all of Judah. They put it under siege. We have still, you could go there. You could see the ramps. You could see the arrowheads. Okay. So we still have it from uh, 2,500 2,600 years ago, uh, and they, they, it toppled. What King Hezekiah had decided to do, very bold move, gutsy move. He says, I'm breaking all religious ties with the king of Assyria. They're, uh, they're the superpower. I'm breaking all political ties. I'm breaking all economic ties. I'm breaking all cultural ties. I'm breaking everything. I'm making my stand on God's word. This is what he does. Very, very bold move. Very bold move. Well, when they pick off every town and Hezekiah learns this great king that Lachish, this town, the second most important town, has fallen, he sends a message to the king of Assyria. He's like, my bad. I have really blown it. Um, I am willing to pay you whatever you require. Please back off and don't put us under siege. And so the king of Assyria says it'll take 300 bars of silver and 30 bars of gold. That is a very steep price. And you might remember last week I said, Hezekiah, his father Ahaz, had shut the temple down. Like, lights out, nothing going on here at the temple. The temple's a big, big, big building in Jerusalem. He says, we're shutting the whole building down. He does. Hezekiah opens the building back up, opens the doors back up, but then he does something. He covers the doors in gold. Now, Hezekiah can't get enough gold to pay the king of Assyria. 
I mean, he's pulling from everywhere. So finally, he rips the gold off the doors of the temple and sends all the money, all the money from the royal treasuries and the temple. He sends it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria says, thank you very much. I'm still coming. I'm going to still destroy you. I don't know why you did what you did. He is just ticked off. And here's what he's thinking. Here's what he's thinking, because he says it over and over again. You're basing your confidence on something. I mean, nobody stands up against Assyria. So you're obviously basing on something. I need to find out what you're basing on. So he sends his best trash talker. And the guy's name is Rabshakeh. Pretty cool name, right? Rabshakeh. And Rabshakeh, there's an art. Okay, I've listened to a lot of trash talking in my day. I played a lot of basketball. There are people who try to trash talk, and then there are people who really know how to trash talk. And it's an art form if you're a great trash talker. Like Michael Jordan. It's a great trash talker. I've never on the court with him, but they say he's a great trash talker. Okay, Rab Shaka is a great trash talker. And he comes and he's, so what you have, everybody, if you can picture this, Israel, uh, Jerusalem, you have the walls of Jerusalem. That's how they protect themselves. And you got all the people from the city sitting up on the walls. Everybody listen to this. And here's Rab Shaka and he's just letting them have it and he's speaking in Hebrew. And so King Hezekiah's guy, like his right-hand man says, oh, whoa, whoa, time out. Like, you're freaking everybody out here, uh, Rabshakeh. I need you to switch to Aramaic because everybody can understand Hebrew. And Rabshakeh says, hey, dude, why do you think my boss, the king of Assyria, sent me? He didn't send me just to speak to you. He sent me to speak to all those people sitting on the wall. Now, check this out. Let's read it. Uh, oh, oh, wait a minute. Did I miss something? Okay. Let, 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 uh, let me read this first, then we'll get to what Rabshakeh said because it's really cool. So, When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about block. This is really important about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city. And they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the streams and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water? That's very important. So I'm glad I didn't forget to say that. Now, Rabshakeh is there. So here's what Rabshakeh says. He says, was it only to your master, he's speaking to the king's right-hand man, and to you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to all these people sitting up here on the wall. Now, you get the words I'm getting ready to say right here, these are euphemisms for what the Bible actually says, okay? These are slang words. You'll catch it in just a second. And to the people sitting on the wall, who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Okay, so he's freaked them. He's freaked them out. He's told them straight up what's getting ready to happen to them. What will Hezekiah do? Here's what Hezekiah immediately does. Remember what I said. The Bible says he's a great king. He's a godly king. So here's what Hezekiah heard this. He tears his clothes. means he's in deep mourning. He puts on sackcloth and he runs straight into the temple. He goes to the temple. He gets everybody praying. And lo and behold, the great prophet Isaiah sends him a message. Is everything going to be all right? Now, you remember, we've got like well over 100,000 Assyrian soldiers and they're camped all around Jerusalem and it is eminent, death is eminent and it's gonna be a long, slow, painful, terrible death. What will happen? Here's what happened. A plague happens. Remember what I said a minute ago about that stopping up all the streams, can't drink the water? Here's what the great historian William McNeil that we talked about last week, who says this event is the greatest event in the history of the entire world. It's not a preacher saying that. It's not a Bible person saying that. It's William McNeil, a historian, says this is it. Our whole world would be different if the Assyrians won. Okay? Stop up the springs. The thought is here from McNeil that what the Assyrian soldiers did is they drank polluted water, it spread like wildfire, and the next morning... Jerusalem wakes up, King Hezekiah wakes up, and they look out, and they're looking at 
almost the entire Assyrian army completely dead. The king of Assyria hears about this. He's like, oh my gosh, look what has happened. This is terrible. And he runs back home. So he goes back home to his, to his own city and he goes into his own temple to pray and two of his sons come in, assassinate him. And that's the story of a king of Assyria. That's the story of the greatest event, according to the historian William McNeil, in the history of the world. Okay, now let's catch up. I need you to remember there's two famous sieges, sieges on Jerusalem. The first was salvation. The second was defeat. The first was King Hezekiah. And he saves the city, but his decisions afterwards lead to the downfall. Let's explain, because this is super important about why we suffer. Let's look at that map one more time. Okay, so they're they're the superpower, right? They're the empire, okay? Here's the rising empire down here in Iraq. It's Babylon. They're the rising empire. They hear about what has happened. Of course, they're very interested, right? Because they're watching these guys. They're very interested. And they hear about, oh my gosh, this little teeny-weeny nation called Jerusalem has defeated the great empire of Assyria. They want to hear about it. So they send a delegation, highly unusual. They send a state delegation from a rising superpower empire to come down to this little... Israel, everybody, you you could basically walk it almost in a couple days. It is tiny. And they send it down to this little teeny nation to say, hey, what can you tell us what happened here? And we're told that King Hezekiah, the great godly king, receives them. He says, oh yeah, come on in. And he gives them a great tour of the entire palace, right? So here is the turning point to all the suffering. You ready for this? This is what, for years, I'm like, why that? Okay, here's what happens. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord Almighty. I'm gonna read it from the screen. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. Then it says this. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon and nothing will be left, says the Lord. He just gave them a tour of the palace, man. You're talking about the greatest king of Judah ever, the godliest man who led reforms. And he's telling your whole city's going to be crushed. Just because I gave them a tour of the palace? I don't, what is wrong with that? Okay, next slide. And some of your descendants, like your great grandkids. This is so bad. Some of your descendants, your kids, your grandkids, and your great grandkids, your own flesh and blood will be born to you, will be taken away as captives to Babylon. And they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This is going to be terrible. We all know. We all know and Hezekiah knows what happens when your city is under siege and you revolt and you're taken captive and your your kids are taken captive. What happens? So 115 years later, they take captive the Babylonians, the city, and the king, descendant of Hezekiah, what they do is they line up all of his kids in front of him and they brutally, slowly, mercilessly kill him and then they poke his eyes out. So we're talking about terrible suffering. Hezekiah knows what's coming. So look what happens. They say, the word of the Lord you have spoken, Hezekiah says. The word of the Lord you have spoken, it's good. I don't see anything good about that word. Everything you've spoken is good, for he thought, check this out, there will be peace and security in my lifetime. This is the, this is the godliest king of Judah we've ever had. This is the great king, Hezekiah. What is the problem? What is the problem? Humanity is the problem. How did he switch from being so godly to being so selfish? Like, hey, as long as I'm good, I'm good. 
I mean, I know it's going to really be bad for people later on. How did he switch? He switched because we all at some point in our life switch. And therein lies the root of the entire problem. We are all human beings. The great godly king Hezekiah, the greatest king ever, is a human being. And as great as the Bible says that Hezekiah was, he was sinful in nature like all of us. Ecclesiastes says it this way. Indeed, there's nobody in the whole earth that is righteous. Nobody, none of us who does what is right and never sins. There's the problem. All of us at some point are selfish. It, it says in 1 John 1, 8, I love the way it says it. If we claim that we're without sin, we're deceiving ourselves. That we need to come to this realization. So everybody, here we go. Here is what the Bible, here is where the Bible and science and all of history collectively agree on one thing. You can't get anybody to agree on anything, everybody. But we have total agreement across lines on this. That human beings are the problem and that human beings are the root of all suffering in our world. Okay, We are self-centered at some point. At some point, we will put in a, be put in a certain situation and under the right circumstance, we will do, according to science, unspeakable things. Unspeakable things. And it was the right situation for Hezekiah. Okay, the Bible calls this sin. Social scientists call it self-centeredness. The Bible calls this the flesh. I never understood that. Maybe some of you grew up in church like me and you read about the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Uh, you know, it just confused my brain. I mean, flesh, what is the deal? It's flesh. It's the way the Bible talked 2,000 years. You got to understand the language about our sinful, selfish nature. The Bible talks about it in a Greek term called sarx, S-A-R-X. We're curved in upon ourselves. Social scientists and history say at the end of the day, the problem is we are radically self-centered. And at some point, it will catch up to us and those around us and will cause a problem. Hezekiah says, as long as I'm okay, I'm, you know, I'm okay. I don't care. You know, ki kill all, all my grandkids. But as long as I'm okay, I'm taking care of myself. You know, there's this, uh, there's this Seinfeld episode that, that I often refer to. If we were allowed to show uh, clips in church, which we're not, I would love to show it to you right now. But the character Elaine, stating a guy, she didn't know that, you know, he is a Christian. He never shared it with her. He's in her car, turns on the radio. He's listening to the Christian radio station. And he's like, uh, she's later like, hey, wait a minute. I didn't know that you were religious. And he said, yeah, yeah, I am. I think his name is Putty or Putty, is it? Enthusiastic, yes, there. I'm figuring you're a Seinfeld fan. She said, Well, aren't you? What about me? You never told me. Aren't you concerned about me? I'm going to go to hell and spend eternity in hell with the devil. Aren't you? Don't you love me? Aren't you he says, It's going to be rough. It's going to be, going to be rough. That's Hezekiah. It's going to be rough. It's okay for me, but it's going to be rough for you. Because at some point, here's the root of the problem we are curved in upon ourselves. Everybody, I want to go back to the question I asked him. What is so wrong with the tour of the palace? He showed them the palace. It says he showed them his gold. He showed them his silver. He showed them his palace. He showed them his weapons. What is the big deal? Why is that so wrong? I want to remind you of something that Rabshakeh said. And in every story in the Bible, it's in, it's in Chronicles, it's in Kings, and it's in Isaiah. Every single time it says, Rabshakeh says, what are you basing your confidence on? There we go. What are you basing 
your confidence on. So the empire of Babylon has come right after this victory against Assyria. And they said, what are you basing this confidence on? And he shows them his gold. He shows them his silver. And what Babylon had come to see, the rising superpower is, we heard there's something different about you. We heard there's something different about Jerusalem. We heard there's something different about your God that's different from every other God. Every nation has a God. And we've come to see what that difference is. And all he did was show them what every, every nation has. So what every nation has. They were coming to see something otherworldly. They were coming to see something transcendent. They were coming to see the very character of God. And the only thing that Hezekiah showed them is what every single nation has. And so what Isaiah says to him is they're going to come back and do to you what every single nation does. Because they were looking for something different. And all you showed them was the same old, same old. You should have showed them God. You should have lifted up the name and the character of God. You should have told them about the God of love and compassion and forgiveness. Because there's no God in the world. Everybody, listen, there was no God. I mean, we talk about it so freely. That, oh, yeah, God is love. There was no God in the history of the world known as a God of love. That's Take it off the table, everybody. Until you get to the Bible, you have no reference zero of a God of love or forgiveness. You and me, we're slaves to a God who will kill us at any moment, who is vindictive and mean. It's like Aristotle said, all these gods in the world, they look a lot like human beings. I'm not sure I believe in all these gods until you got to this one. And so the Babylonian empire comes, the rising superpower says, hey, we've come to see something different here. And all he showed them. And so Isaiah says, you know what? Naturally, what is going to happen is they are going to come back and do what every nation has done. Now, they are visitors. One more time with the map. From Babylon, okay? 600 years later, right? So, so why did they come? Because something unusual happened. 600 years after this event with Hezekiah, a delegation showed up in Jerusalem because they saw something unusual. Let, let, let's read it. It's in Matthew 2, everybody. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, this, the, the, the coincidence is just off the charts, okay? After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, a state delegation from the east, we know that was Babylon, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And what they saw, this state delegation from Babylon, they didn't see gold, they didn't see silver, they didn't see a palace. They saw something that the world has never seen before. They saw what the Bible says is the prince of peace, the king of love. They saw what, the, what Jesus says is the light of the world. They saw the good shepherd. They saw Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah looked out on his people when Isaiah said, hey, everybody's going to suffer. And he looks out on them with no compassion whatsoever. We are told repeatedly throughout the scriptures, Jesus looks out on crowds of people, many times filled with his enemies and is filled with compassion. When this delegation came from Babylon in Matthew chapter two, they saw something the world has never seen before, never seen before. And it has totally changed the world. I'm going to get into talking about Ernest Becker in just a moment. Famous writer, not a Christian. Famous, famous. He is a philosophical anthropologist, won a Pulitzer. We'll talk about him in just a second. But he says, this moment right here, he's not a Christian. This moment right here changed the world and the world's never been the same since. Ever. 
because we protected ourselves with gold and silver before. And what Jesus Christ showed us is, is there's something greater than money. King Hezekiah is indifferent. He has no compassion yet. Jesus Christ is filled with compassion. Lamentations chapter two, verse number 15 says, Jerusalem is the perfection of beauty. Now I've been to Jerusalem. It's not that beautiful. Not that beautiful. Why in the world would it say that Jerusalem is the perfection of beauty? You know, I, I've been to uh, a number of towns in Hawaii. They're on the running, okay? But Jerusalem is not on that short list. What is it saying? Is it saying that Jerusalem is aesthetically beautiful? No. When lamentation says it is the perfection of beauty, here's the reason why. Because it's supposed to represent the character of God. And, and, and if it does represent the character of God, everybody, if it does, and it does it correctly, and doesn't lift up gold and silver and weapons, something that every nation has, if it lifts up the character of God, character is king, if it lifts it up, then the whole world changes, because this is the most important thing, king. Character is king, and it's meant to represent the very character of God. Everybody, um, does, does anybody in the room know who is the highest paid NFL quarterback? Can anybody help me out with that? NFL player, matter of fact. NFL player in history. Can anybody please shout it out? Joe Burrow, Derek's best friend. Pastor Derek's best friend is the, is, is the highest played pe player in the history of the NFL. Now, since, we, since the NFL world decided to pay him so much money, what has happened to Joe Burrow? He is the worst quarterback in the NFL. His rating is the worst. Uh, what I'd like everybody to do is track down Pastor Derek after this and ask him, number one, why is Joe Burrow, his best friend, the worst quarterback in the NFL? And number two, why did Pastor Derek think that he could solve all of his problems with money? Money will never work, okay? Hezekiah thinks, oh, money is the, is, is the root of all of our answers. It's going to prevent us from suffering. And actually, money without character fuels suffering. Say it again. Money without character fuels suffering. And that's exactly what happens here with King Hezekiah. The reality is we all have limited character. We're going to have to get our brains wrapped around that. And I want to say this again. All of social science and all of history are in common agreement with what the Bible says. We all have limited character. And when put in the right position, we will do unspeakable things. I oftentimes and other people, we want to blame suffering on God. God, why are we suffering? The reality is, is that King Hezekiah and his selfish decisions leads to the suffering of our planet. Leads to the suffering that we all experience. It's, it's, it's in us. It's where we are. God from page one of the Bible is begging us to make him the hero, to make him the king of our lives and to reflect his character. And if we do so, we will diminish suffering. It's the most direct path to diminishing suffering. Hezekiah chooses not to, even though he's in the perfect position to do so, and we all suffer. And here's the deal. We will all do the same thing that King Hezekiah did. That is the reality. Instead, we should, as the Bible says, choose Jesus Christ. It is the only path out of suffering. Now, I want to show you a resource list, okay, in the last few moments of this message. Uh, you've seen a bunch of these before. You can take a picture of it. You can go on our Grace app. They're all there. These are all fantastic books. I want to draw your attention to these two right here at the top by Ernest Becker, okay? Uh, Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer... Not yet. 
Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for the denial of death. Fabulous book, very dense. Like I've read both of these books, Escape from Evil and the Dial of Death, I don't know, three, four times because I'm just trying to process everything that he's saying here. I want to tell you what he does in both of these books. He brings together some of the greatest minds in history, okay? Freud, Rank, Otto Rank, which is his favorite, uh, Nietzsche, uh, on and on, Kierkegaard. You're looking at some of the brightest, the most brilliant minds we've ever had. And he's just synthesizing, synthesizing all of their thoughts. And that's why the, his books, these two books, are just absolutely, absolutely amazing. Uh, if I can sum up what he says for you, then I'm going to read just a short quote from him, okay? He says, scientifically, we can prove basically what the problem is with our world. We can do this scientifically. Everybody, here's what amazes me about this. The Bible has been saying this for so many years. And now what we have is we have great social scientists saying... Now, we, we, need to, we need to connect the dots. If you're a Christian, you need to help people connect the dots between God's word and the mountain of evidence that exists out here. And this, this is what, he's not a Christian. Uh, this, is, this is what he's saying in his book. And it's so clear as you read his books what he's talking about, okay? Humanity is the problem. We want to blame God for the suffering, but God is begging us. I have shown you the way out. I have shown you. Just choose character. Choose my character. Follow my ways and you'll get out of this. He talks about a dark shadow. Now, this is where the Bible talks about our sin nature. And it's in all of us. And here's the thing. We all have a hard time actually realizing it. Now, uh, this, is, this is what he says here. He sums up a fantastic quote, but his end line on it is, the principle and indeed the only thing that is wrong with the world is man. This is the same thing everybody the Bible says. And so now we have to deal with this. If we want to diminish suffering, we're going to have to deal with that. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things. But here's what, here's what Becker says and here's what the Bible says. We don't know it. We don't see it. We dimly suspect it because we have an unlimited capacity for self deception. I don't realize that I need Jesus as much as I need Jesus. Much of the world doesn't realize that it needs Jesus because we dimly, this is what the social scientists say, and this is what the Bible says, we dimly suspect it. We have an unlimited capacity for self-deception. Everybody this morning, right now, almost 100% of the people sitting in an emergency room right now, sitting in an emergency room for a car accident that they caused, for a car accident they caused, almost 100% of them rate themselves as an excellent driver. They don't rate themselves as a good driver, a mediocre driver, an average driver. Almost 100% of the people sitting in an emergency room right now for an accident that they cause rate themselves as what? An excellent driver. We have an unlimited capacity for self-deception. Almost 100% of college professors, smart people. You might say, well, those people that cause the action, the accident, you know, they're not smart. They don't know what they're doing. Almost 100% of college professors rate themselves as above average as teachers. We have an unlimited capacity for self-deception. This is what the Bible's saying, and this is what all the surveys are saying. How about going to heaven? Almost 100% everybody, according to surveys, almost 100% of people say they're going to heaven. Well, what if you don't believe in God? Okay, all right, fine. We say, we say to them, okay, but if there was a God and if there was a heaven, do you think you'd go? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think that Mother Teresa will go? I'm not so sure. You think Billy Graham's going to be there? The Pope is going to be there? You think Oprah's going to be there? Nah, nah. The only person that is locked in for sure that is going to heaven is you. You are the only person going to heaven. As long as you're one taking a survey. You don't know how a person sitting next to you. 
you're pretty sure that they have a 50-50 chance, the person sitting next to you right now. But one thing we know is you're going because we have an unlimited capacity for self-deception, okay? So it's clear. So the social science is clear. And most importantly, everybody, the Bible is radically clear. It tells us what the issue is. Money's not the answer. All the other stuff in life is not the answer. Only character is the answer and only God is the answer. So I want to sum up in conclusion this thing. Number one, all people are imperfect. And number two, all people are looking for a hero. Whether you know it or not, you have a hero in your life right now. Whether you know it or not, this is what we know. This is what we know. This is why the Bible talks about idolatry all the time. Here's what the social scientists tell us. Whether you want to admit it or not, you have a hero. Somebody has shaped your life. You're looking to somebody. And here's the issue right now. Let's just bring it to a conclusion. If we are serious about wanting to take a bite out of suffering, diminish suffering, if we're really, really serious about that, if you choose King Hezekiah as your hero, you have chosen an imperfect hero. There is only one person in the history of the world that given the worst set of circumstances always puts you first. Always puts you first. And this is why that if you want to do something serious about suffering in our world, you need to choose the person who was always selfless. You need to choose the person, no matter what you did, who is always for you and never against you and wrap your life around Jesus Christ. There is nobody in the history of the world who said they're God and nobody in the history of the world who said, you know what, I will always do the right thing for you, that my love for you is unconditional. In a moment, we're going to sing this song, Oh, Come to the Altar. God's arms are open wide. Nobody else would do that for you. I don't care how much you think somebody in this, even your mama, even your mama, there is a point where the love is conditional. You know this to be true. There's a point, except for Jesus Christ. He says, I don't care what you've done. My arms will always be open wide. Isn't it the smartest thing, the most rational thing, the most practical thing to become a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, isn't it the smartest thing, the most rational thing, the most powerful and transformative thing we could ever do just to say right now, since it's only Jesus, since I'm going to have a hero, isn't right now that I choose the person who is always, no matter what happens, going to put me first and die to themselves? Wouldn't that be the smartest thing I could do to end suffering on our planet? Wouldn't that be the practical thing to do? This is the argument of the Bible. And everybody, I've got to say, if you'll read phenomenal books like the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Ernest Becker's books, I think you will come to the exact same conclusion. So I wanna ask you before I pray, my gosh, please, suffering is terrible. It's horrific. There's too much of it and we should do something about it. And that something is only one thing. That's something, according to our rational minds, according to the study of history and social science, that one thing that we can do and the only thing we can do is open our arms wide to becoming followers of Jesus Christ, the only person who ever has claimed to both be God and to always be for you and to never, ever be against you. I would encourage you as I pray now that you would consider either saying, you know what, I've never done that before, I'm gonna do it. Or you know what? I've done it a million times and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to reaffirm my commitment to Almighty God to end, diminish, take a bite out of suffering in this world. And if you want somebody to pray with you after this, our prayer team will be right over here. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, uh, so much that you give us such a clear, rational, pragmatic, powerful answer 
to the terrible suffering that goes on in our world. We all want to do something about it. And here you have told us, here is the thing you can do. You can come to me because my arms are open wide. And they will never, ever, ever be close to you. My love for you is unconditional. I stand at the ready. Jesus, you can be our greatest hero. The one above all else. The one and only name in the history of the world that is always for us. Never against us. For those of us who are reaffirming our commitment to you right now, God, strengthen us. Strengthen our resolve. Help us to fix our eyes on you. For those of us who finally, maybe for the first time, say, ah, okay, boy, that makes sense. Jesus is the answer. Help us, Lord, to walk the walk, to walk the walk, and to follow your amazing character that will transform us and transform our world. In Christ's name, amen.